and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your sometimes host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I am so thrilled to be back in the studio today with LARB managing editor Medea Ocher and LARB editor-at-large Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi, Eric. It's so nice to have you back. I know. Oh, I really have missed you guys. Today we have a conversation with Yogita Goyal, professor of African-American studies and English at UCLA, about her new book, Runaway Genres, The Global Afterlives of Slavery. And one of the things that I really love Yogita's work, obviously, as I say in the interview, um, she was my dissertation chair when I got my PhD in English at UCLA. But one of the things that I appreciate the most about her is the broad capaciousness of her reading. I mean, Mm -hmm. as you can tell in this book, it's like she has read reams and reams of books. Like it is truly incredible. And she manages to tell this really complicated, nuanced, and really interesting story about the development of certain genres in African-American and global African literature from kind of the origins of the slave narrative through the neo-slave narrative, post-black satire, new African diaspora lit, the kind of modern slave story and all of those kind of things. I thought it's like, it runs the gamut and it's just breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought she did a really wonderful job sort of explaining the connections between all of those different things. Yes. Because potentially they might seem so so big and broad, as you said, Eric, but there is a form of continuity between the old slave narrative tropes and Mm -hmm. the kind of books and the kind of stories that are getting published today. I also liked her sensibility. Um, She brings to all this work, which is one that is against sentimentality. Exactly. And that, you know, as someone who can be overly sentimental, that really speaks to me. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) It's a good little... Keeps you in check. I'm chastised by it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. I need need to keep in check about that kind of stuff. Well, I think it's really difficult because most ways in which we encounter stories that deal with whatever kind of neo-slavery subjects that Yogita talks about are almost always sentimental, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the way that the news presents these stories, the way that books, bestsellers, et cetera, present these stories almost always that way. Right. So I think it's really difficult exactly. to avoid. Yeah. And yeah. that's also what she's very productively, I think, pushing back against. Yeah. It also really made me excited to read more and more deeply in contemporary literature, which mm. is like a thing that I feel like I, I get to do a little bit more now, but not as much as I probably should. Yeah. And it's just there's so much stuff out there that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Same. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get to that conversation. Let's do it. We're excited to have Yogita Goyal with us in the studio today. Yogita is a professor of African American Studies and English at UCLA and the author of Romance, Diaspora, and the Black Atlantic Literature. She is also editor of several collections exploring transatlantic literature and the editor of the journal Contemporary Literature. I should also note in the spirit of full disclosure that Yogita was my dissertation chair at UCLA, a fact that hopefully no one holds against her. (laughs) Professor Goyal joins us today to talk about her latest book, Runaway Genres, The Global Afterlives of Slavery. Runaway Genres centers on the slave narrative, both its historical origination in the abolitionist struggle against the transatlantic slave trade and its transformations in the new genres of the neo-slave narrative, post-black satire, and a new wave of diaspora literature. 
Amid these questions of genre and its mutations, Goyal critiques media and other narratives of modern slavery and their uneven, distorted relationship to the historical horror they invoke in their pitch for Western empathy. As she explores the present's entanglement with the past, Goyle attends to the unfinished work of abolition, as well as the ways in which globalization and its aesthetic, ethical, and political ramifications demand us to rethink race, violence, and action in the present. Welcome to the show, Yogita. Thank you for having me. Okay, so first, while our listeners will probably be familiar with the original kind of slave narratives, or the early versions of work in that genre from people like Frederick Douglass, Harriet Jacobs, and others, could you explain a little bit what the neo-slave narrative is, as well as the conditions of modern slavery that you address in the book? Absolutely. And I should start out by saying that even though the terms sound similar, I think neo-slavery and modern slavery actually refer to different things. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll, yes. I'll talk about the neo-slave narrative first. One of the, I think, really remarkable developments in contemporary African-American literature has been the return of writers to the subject of slavery mm -hmm. and to the form of the slave narrative in particular. Right. Mm -hmm. So we can think of something like Alex Haley's Roots in 1976, sure. the TV show that really, you know, put the question, put the subject on the map nationally. Mm -hmm. But it's been remarkable over the last four decades how many African-American writers, you know, really well-established and well-known writers, Toni Morrison, Octavia Butler, Charles Johnson, Fred Degar, Edward Jones, have written neo-slave narratives, right? Mm -hmm. So the sort of most limited definition would be, or more circumscribed definition would be a contemporary narrative that takes up the shape of a historical slave narrative, right? So it narrates the story of escape from slavery to freedom using a first-person voice. But the genre has really expanded, so it doesn't have to take that simple form. Mm. So any kind of fictional engagement with the subject of slavery is what we tend to call the neo-slave narrative. Just for listeners who aren't familiar kind of with the plots along the way of a slave narrative. So it is from someone enslaved to freedom. And are there any other kind of tropes that are always included in a slave narrative? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a really great question. The slave narrative, we have examples from lots of examples from the 18th and the 19th centuries. And Morrison very rightly talked about how it was a 19th century publication boom. Right. So these were bestsellers. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's always sort of remarkable to me to think about is that Frederick Douglass's narrative, 1845 narrative, it sold more copies than Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. So that gives you a sense yeah. of kind of the popularity and the appeal because many of these narratives were promoted and published by abolitionist organizations. They do tend to be quite formulaic. So many of them start with a number of prefaces. There might be a photograph of the author or an engraving of the author. They usually have a very long title that also includes words like written by himself or written by herself. Some kind of claim that this is a true story. It's been authenticated, mm -hmm. right? So there's an emphasis on you're hearing about slavery as it really was, right? That this has not been embellished. This is not melodramatic and so on. That's the claim. There are often prefaces from white abolitionists that attest to the good character of the narrator whose story you're about to hear or some other facts about the specific story. And the general story, the narrative is about the escape from being enslaved to finding freedom. And it 
When I say it's formulaic, many of them do start with the specific phrase, I was born. Mm -hmm. There's often a meditation on, I don't actually know exactly when I was born because, you know, the slave owner didn't keep records. It's often the story of someone who has a white father, the master is the father, who's raped the female slave, who's the mother. And so the kind of breakdown of the family structure from the very beginning is where we start. They're usually quite Horrific examples, scenes of whipping, other kinds of violent abuse, examples of sadistic treatment of maybe a fellow slave. In Frederick Douglass's case, it's his aunt who's whipped very brutally, and that's how he sort of understands the nature of slavery as an institution. That's how he describes it. The story goes on from there. There's usually some kind of explanation of how the narrator gained access to literacy, It might be that they stole access to literacy, right, because it wasn't always offered or there may have been some circumstances that led to that acquisition. And it's tied very centrally to the creation of identity. So literacy, identity, freedom become intertwined. And they're often... Slave narratives also fulfill sort of an ethnographic function. So there might be descriptions of what life was like on the plantation. There might be a description of the economy, of dances, of the kind of food that they ate, of labor practices, right? So all kinds of sort of accounts of what life on the plantation looked like. I mean, Mm. I guess it goes without saying, but it was something that I wasn't obvious to me as I was reading about these narratives, which is they were written for a completely white audience. They were written specifically for a northern audience. Northern audience. audience, And this is what brings us to the association of sentimentalism with the genre, which is something that I'm really interested in. In some ways, they were written to make the reader feel the pain of the narrator and to understand the humanity of the narrator, right? And by extension, to understand how bad slavery is as an institution, because it's wrecking this person, it's wrecking this person's Mm -hmm. family, and to move the audience to action. So that was the specific goal of the slave narrative historically. Mm -hmm. I pushed you off track because now we're talking about the neo-slave narratives, and is the goal similar? I think in some ways, It's actually quite different, Mm -hmm. and that's a reflection of the historical distance. I mean, one would hope that writers writing in the last 40 years wouldn't have to be circumscribed by the audience's, you know, either voyeuristic or sentimental expectations in the same kinds of ways, though, of course, there are continuities. So Morrison, for instance, has very clearly said that she turned to this landscape of slavery and to the original, the narratives that already exist, and she found them repellent. So in some ways, she says she had to go through them because she felt that any time the narrator was getting to something that was really difficult, really obscene, they would say, and this speaks to the question you were asking about audience, right, the audience's needs, they would say, let's put a veil over this question. This is too difficult, reader, I will not say more. And so Morrison says that for me, the goal is to rip that veil. A lot of the contemporary slave narratives, especially the ones that have become really prominent. They've won major awards. They really shaped the conversation about slavery and its afterlife today. They actually take up very, very uncomfortable subjects. So Edward Jones, for example, in The Known World takes up the question of black slave owners, which is obviously not some kind Mm. of, you know, massive historical reality. Morrison in Beloved writes about the difficult ethical choices of a slave mother who kills her child to protect her from slavery. 
you know, raising all kinds of difficult moral and ethical and historical questions for us. So in a lot of ways, I think the neo-slave narrative as it exists in the hands of African-American writers has moved quite far away from the restrictions and pushes back against a lot of the restrictions of the historical slave narrative. So I wanted to connect some of the things that you're talking about. So to pick up sentimentalism mm -hmm. as kind of a problem and other ways that we could talk about this would be the generation of empathy, like sort and affective appeals to readers for some form of social change. So this is a problem on the one hand, or it shows the limits of the earlier abolitionist movement in terms of like shaping narratives in particular ways. But there's also a way in which your book unpacks how in kind of modern narratives, such as the child soldier narrative, so like ways that we talk about modern slavery, they actually borrow a lot of those tropes and you push back against sentimentalism as something that you think has, especially in the modern era, come to be a barrier to any real action, or it's a substitute is actually the word that you have for action. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that mm -hmm. and how you see that operative in some of at least the child soldier narratives mm -hmm. that you discuss earlier in the book? Absolutely. So I think one of the sort of really surprising things for me as I was reading was to realize that as the African-American writers of the neo-slave narrative are moving away from sentimentalism or from kind of an appeal to the readers, you know, or trying to create some kind of moral opportunity for the reader to learn something about themselves, those very same conditions of production and reception that we associate with the historical slave narrative return in the global realm. Mm. So we can think about, as you say, Eric, the child soldier narrative, which is primarily, though not exclusively, coming from places like Sudan or Liberia or Sierra right. Leone, right, in the 21st century. It's a kind of major body of work. Or we can think of something like Guantanamo Diary, Mohamedou Slahi's mm -hmm. narrative of detention for 14 years at Guantanamo Bay. And what I was fascinated by is that many of them are books that are edited by a sympathetic, often white, Western journalist or activist. So in a very um, similar way to the original slave way, it, right? it replicates yeah. those conditions sort of almost exactly. There's often a letter or an appendix saying this really happened, this person is of good character. There's a kind of marketing human rights machinery around some of mm -hmm. these texts. Mm -hmm. And some of you will remember Ishmael Bea's child soldier narrative that was sold in Starbucks, you know, and again, these are bestsellers, right? right. These are, you know, mm -hmm. thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of these books are being sold. So I was fascinated by that, that you have in the contemporary moment, you know, we think about African diaspora literature kind of globally mm -hmm. these days, right? So we think about these writers thinking about each other, talking to each other across the US, Britain, the Caribbean and Africa. But here you have two different groups with very different strategies, right? So in the African-American tradition, sentimentalism has been something that writers have run away from from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So we can think about something like Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe's 1852 novel that is sort of your classic sentimental treatment of slavery and has been attributed by a lot of people as really shaping the conversation about mm -hmm. how a northern... 19th century audience should think about slavery. So Richard Wright, for example, writing in the 20th century when he wrote Uncle Tom's Children, 
And he realized that, as he put it, and you know, you can notice the kind of gendered language here as well, that bankers' daughters were crying over it. Mm-hmm. He was like, I'm going to write a book that's so hard and so deep that no one can shed a tear, mm-hmm. right? So there's been this attempt mm-hmm. to kind of walk away from that affective, visceral, you know, let me tell you how horrible my life is and how sad my life is. And then you can feel bad about it. Then you can understand I'm a human being. And, and Yogita, just on this point, is part of the reason why that movement away has taken place is that there's been clear indications that sentiment has not, in fact, like dramatically changed. I mean, obviously, we do not have, you know, like we did have the Emancipation Proclamation, all of that, but the unfinished business of abolition Mm -hmm. means that those conditions haven't changed. So maybe then it's we need a new strategy other than sentiment. I think that's right. But also that an appeal to feelings and actually working for structural change are not interchangeable, mm-hmm. right? That right, they, they right. actually may entail different kinds of strategies. All of these kind of sentimental, you know, very familiar tropes, tears, separation from a mother, you know, scenes of education, learning how to read, all of these return in sort of dramatic ways in the modern slave narrative, which is sort of gets us to the question of what is modern slavery and how has it been defined? And it's actually, I think, useful to remember that it's not really a term that comes out of international law. There are some Like in 1956, there's a supplemental proclamation that talks about things like human trafficking and so on as akin to slavery. But the suggestion that human trafficking, sex trafficking, conscription in war as a child soldier, forced an early marriage, bonded labor, that all of these kind of diverse practices should be understood as instances of modern slavery is really the development of the 21st century humanitarian and human rights activist groups like Mm Anti-Slavery International, Mm -hmm. Free the Slaves, Walk Free Foundation, and so on. That's where this language comes from. It's quite recent in some ways. And the laws that are being passed in the U.S. and the U.K. and in Australia primarily They're also very, very recent. So Australia passed a law in 2018. The UK Mm. had the Modern Slavery Act in 2015. And the reason I bring that up is because if you talk to, and there's a lot of people who've written about this, all of these activities that are clubbed under modern slavery, right, under the moniker of modern slavery, would actually come under very different legal questions under the tenets of international law. So bonded labor, conscription in war as a child soldier, they wouldn't, you wouldn't approach them in the same kind of way. So it's become this umbrella term under which we think about all of these diverse practices. And, and why do you think that umbrella term has become useful in some capacity, either in terms of passing legislation of some kind worldwide or in terms of discussing such a variety of things that happen in the world? I should say that for me, the jury is still out on whether the term is useful. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually quite critical of the way in which the term has come to signify that we can understand these contemporary practices, mostly from the global south, as repetitions of a past, of an American past that we've now superseded. Because I think it actually does violence to both sides Mm -hmm. of the equation, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think that the question of slavery, the meaning of it for the nation has been settled in the United States. And this discourse seems to suggest there's a certain kind of triumphalism 
that mm. abolitionism succeeded. It was mm -hmm. one of the greatest human rights movements of the 19th century. Let's use those same tools to now tackle the problems that we have today. I am suspicious of that kind of suggestion that what we're seeing today is the exact repetition of mm -hmm. what came before. I think there are complicated links to what came before, and that's partly why I wanted to explore the ways in which we find similarity, but also significant difference, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, many of the things that we talk about under the moniker of modern slavery, the discourse that's been developed to talk about it, the neo-abolitionist discourse or the modern slave discourse, you know, they don't talk about oil and resources extraction. They don't mm -hmm. talk about the politics and the questions around illegal immigration. They don't even talk about incarceration in the United States, right? And they don't talk about labor as a central category, exploitation of labor as a central category. So to answer your question, I think Atlantic slavery, the template of the slave narrative from the past, is useful because it can create a fairly simple and simplistic moral tableau where you have an innocent victim, an evil villain, and a humanitarian savior who can swoop mm -hmm. in from the outside and solve the problem. And I think, as we know, the conditions that create these horrific circumstances require a lot more complexity and a lot more awareness of what are the histories and the kind of current geopolitical exigencies that have created this situation. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Yogita Goyle, author of Runaway Genres, The Global Afterlives of Slavery. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. So, we have Monique Trung on the line with us today. Her latest novel is called The Sweetest Fruits, and Monique is joining us for a book recommendation. Monique, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend um, a novel called The Unpassing by a Taiwanese-American author named Chia Chia Lin. And last name is spelled L-I-N. And it's set in Alaska. And there is something so absolutely potent about the geography of Alaska, the wilderness, the isolation that this Taiwanese family finds themselves within. Have you been to Alaska? I have not been to Alaska. And what I think Lynn does is evoke the, at once the isolation, but also the beauty of what I imagine to be Alaska. And truly, it becomes a character in her novel as as it should. Mm -hmm. And there is really, I, I can't even emphasize to you how much Alaska becomes another character mm -hmm. in this novel. And it is a take on the immigrant narrative that is new and fresh and just truly exhilarating. It sounds really great. Will you tell us the name of the book again and the author? The name of the novel is The Unpassing by Chia Chia Lin. Thank you so much, Monique. We have been joined by Monique Trung. Her latest book is called The Sweetest 
fruits. Thanks again. Thank you. We now return to our conversation with Yogada Goyle, author of Runaway Genres, The Global Afterlives of Slavery. In the book, I feel like I'm, I'm so guilty of this because the analogy for me is like the most you know, expedient, useful tool to say something, you know, this is just like this, or to linking things always by comparison. And I loved and was very um, inspired by your suspicion of that. So maybe you could just talk about that a little bit more, even as a like, rhetorical, mm-hmm. that might not be so useful. Mm-hmm. I think when I first started working on, on this topic, um, I had what I would say was a sort of historian's suspicion, right? That, that And it was quite simple. It was like, you know, this is slavery as an institution historically was supported by the law, every institution of the government, you know, the government, the church, everybody was involved in it. What does it mean to say that if somebody's being, if somebody's a victim of human trafficking today, that's the same thing. It's obviously not the same thing, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. it's not legal, for example, and that seems like a, like a really big difference. Mm. Um, as, I, as I dug deeper into it, I do think that, um, I do think analogy is very useful and I'm very invested in it as well. I just think we need to do it with a lot of care, right? Because I think analogy suggests both correspondence and difference. So I think especially when you're making analogies across time and space, right? And both of those things are happening here. I think we have to be very careful about suggesting that the third world or the post-colony or the global south, whatever seems like, like the right term to you, you know, it's the recipient of so many obsolete technologies from the first world, right? And so I'm, I'm mm. worried that certain kinds of racial forms are now being exported mm. in the same kind of way that are seen as obsolete here, but relevant there. So I wanted to kind of get us to think a little bit about what are the politics of creating these analogies across time and space. So it's not so much to say don't do it, mm-hmm. right? Like, right. I think we all do it, and we all find it useful. And I think analogies can be really powerful, right? So we can think about, for example, the contemporary uh, refugee, you know, and I'll call it crisis, because even though I think we, we can think more critically about that term as well, I think there are many useful ways of thinking about analogies to that. And we've seen that happening. We can think about the Holocaust. We can think about Japanese internment. You know, a lot of people have been drawing those connections. So I think there are ways to connect what we're seeing today to other times and places in ethical ways, in historical ways, in politicized ways. What I'm questioning is sort of a a knee-jerk, you know, like sort of like, oh, here's something, we've seen it before, let's use the same tools that we used back Mm -hmm. then to, you know, solve the problem today, because I don't think that's going to work. Well, and also, I mean, part of what I pick up in your book is there's also a, a kind of political or psychological trajectory that gets encoded into that move whereby the reader, especially, let's say, the Western white reader, Mm -hmm. can exonerate themselves from any complicity in the system, right? So that it's like, well, it's happening over there. There's also a way in which these historical analogies allow us to associate or relegate the third world to a kind of pastness Mm -hmm. in -hmm. which, like, the West is modern and, oh, look, they're, like, still behind. So I'm wondering if, like, you can talk a little bit about that, about how, in some ways, this distancing is its own problem, not just whether or not the history is 
always align with the present, but rather how it allows us in the West to exonerate ourselves from our complicity in what's going on in the global South. Mm-hmm. I think absolutely. And I think it's it's also about, I, I think these are all attempts to foreshorten the distance, right? I think we all understand that in the 21st century, right, which post-globalization, mm-hmm. there is such a, a circuit of, you know, objects, of people, of ideas, crisscrossing back and forth. So I think sort of older models, you know, from one way kind of traffic of, you know, that something is developed over here in the West and then it can be exported mm-hmm. over there without any kind of pushback is, is, is not really viable if, if it ever was. One example would be, I think this will be familiar to many people, is Coney 2012, Right, mm-hmm. the viral video made by the Invisible Children Foundation that had the tagline that, you know, here's this obscure Ugandan warlord mm-hmm. and we're going to make him famous, right? So the language of visibility, of exposure, the idea that if you just circulate this video, right, that you're doing something. You're mm-hmm. doing something good to save this this child who's in this video, who's helpless, right, who needs your help. And as many Ugandan and, and other African activists and critics pointed out, that's a really, really demeaning and offensive story. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. There's people on the ground who are fighting those battles. And in some ways, it can actually do a lot of harm. So one of the modern slave uh, slavery organizations, Christian Solidarity International, carries out this practice of slave redemptions, where it used to carry them out. So for $50, you can rescue, you can redeem a slave, you know, you can buy a slave and set them free. And As you can imagine, this actually led to an increase Mm -hmm. in the kidnapping and captivity of people, Mm -hmm. right? So it's it's doing by creating a new market. It's actually doing harm, not just doing good, right? Like not just not doing good. It's actually doing harm. We can think of better models of Mm. humanitarianism, of empathy, of of relation. And I would say, since Eric, since you started out by talking about reading. I always think that, you know, I I don't want to demonize the Western reader, right? Like, I'm also a Western reader, right? And I'm sort of aware of of the complexity of the use of us and them in Mm -hmm. this uh, situation. You know, like, I'm a person of color. I'm an immigrant. Um, I'm from the former third world, but I have a U.S. passport, right? So Mm -hmm. it's, but, but I do think that, I think we're asking too little of readers by assuming that they want to have this very simplified, moralizing tale. I think readers are ready for more. And mm. I think they, they would be very happy, you know, and, and sort of interested in, in pushing their thinking further. Well, and that's why your discussion of this, this kind of neo-slavery narrative satire is so interesting because, of course, those the books, some of the books you mentioned really push the envelope in terms of how they use slavery. So maybe you could talk, I mean, and I guess... You know, the the aim in some ways seems different. I don't think Paul Beatty is trying. I mean, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and I, you know, th- which kind of brings up a larger question in the book of what is literature for. Mm-hmm. But be- beyond that, maybe you could just talk mm-hmm. about some of like the way that this narrative has been reinvented and complicated and, mm-hmm. and made hilarious. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that the structure of the book for me is, is that I was going to begin with the kind of simplest and clearest analogy, right? So the suggestion that the, let's say the child soldier is a specter of the modern slave, and then slowly but steadily move away from that equation to more complicated engagements, right? So satire is, is one example of that. There's no way in which anyone could read Paul Beatty's Sellout or Matt Johnson's Pym 
you know, or, or look at Kara Walker's work or look at Susan mm-hmm. Laurie Parks's work and sort of walk away feeling comfortable, right? There's, there's no way there, and much of what they're doing is um, attacking the kind of respectability politics, attacking liberalism, attacking the kind of pieties around race and post-racialism, especially that they came into play in the Obama era. Right. Mm -hmm. So they want to point out the contradictions of a society that keeps saying, well, we've solved this problem. Now we have a black president. We've solved this problem. Mm -hmm. Right. And and we can go on and do other things. But they're also interested, like Beatty is very interested in also pointing out the kind of contradictions and the hypocrisies of those people who appoint themselves as representatives of the race. Right. And, And much of the goal there is to break open the notion both of blackness and of the black writer as some mm-hmm. kind of you know, self-anointed leader or representative who's going to give you an authentic account of what all black people think, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think right. part, of, part of what they're trying to do is to really open up the idea of you know, these terms that we use, black identity, black community, you know, and just kind of complicate those stories and unsettle them either through some kind of absurd juxtaposition or through irreverence or through role playing, right? And just really try to get to get us to think about what is it, what are the incoherencies in our language, in our vocabulary about race and racism, right? What are we not allowed to say? What, mm. what, what are we not able to say and why? In a different way, also towards the end of the book, when you talk about this kind of new wave of diasporic literature coming out of Africa and and elsewhere, you talk about how that literature does a similar but different challenge of the ways in which we frame our typical dyads, right? So either Africa versus America, or the immigrant Mm -hmm. versus the native, or African versus African-American, right? So can you talk a little bit about um, what possibilities you see being opened up in that literature? I think it's a really exciting time for 21st century African diaspora literature. Mm-hmm. The visibility and the, and the acclaim that we've seen um, accorded to figures like Chimamanda Adichie, mm-hmm. Teju Cole, Taya Selassie, Yajasi, uh, right. yeah. for sure. Um, I, I think it's changing the narrative on both sides, right? Or, or it's, uh, to use Adichie's term, there's no single story that we can continue to tell. Right. Either about, you know, American blackness, or about the African novel itself, right? And so these are writers who, who's in some ways, um, are treated suspiciously on both ends. The, the suspicion here in the United States is that there's a way in which this, you know, the model minority, right? Mm-hmm. So we've all seen these stories about uh, Nigerian students who get admission into every single Ivy League, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that can be used by the right wing and is used by the right wing to kind of attack African Americans, right, for their own practices and their own cultural practices, which is something that goes back to the to the Moynihan report mm-hmm. in some ways. And on the other hand, in, in the um, African literary scene, there's often a suspicion of these writers because they're a cosmopolitan, they travel all around the world, they may not live, you know, in the places that they write about. So there's this suspicion that they're inauthentic, mm-hmm. right? So in some ways, I think these so-called Afropolitan writers do connect in interesting ways to the kind of iconoclastic work that somebody like Paul Beatty or Colson Whitehead is doing, right? Because they're all kind of chafing against the traditions, the respective traditions that Mm -hmm. they're writing within, and they're trying to open up some spaces for new kinds of bodies and new kinds of experiences to become visible. I do think the literary strategies are different. So one of the things that's quite interesting about the, the new African 
uh, 21st century novel is that it's predominantly realist. Right. So they're writing mm. kind of they're writing about middle class protagonists. It might be a student who comes to college to America. You know, uh, Adichie is Americana is kind of the greatest example of this. It's a, and a lot of reviews when it was first published was. So this is the great American novel. It's not about baseball. It's about hair. Right. It's about <laughs> black women's hair. So, you know, it's taking up kind of these ordinary subjects. Right. Yeah. But really but also really trying to move away from the association of what we could call the contemporary black novel with mm. trauma alone, mm. right? And really trying to get, get us to think about ordinary experiences as they are represented in fiction. I'm curious about what brought you personally to the subject as a scholar and how you began studying this and, how, and what brought you to this, to this book today. So th- th- this book in particular, I had been, I came to UCLA in 2004 And so for a long time before I was writing this book, I was writing other books, I was doing other things, but I had been teaching a class on slavery pretty much consistently every year. Mm -hmm. And I'd done it in different ways. Sometimes it would be a mix of, you know, historical material and contemporary material with something like Octavia Butler's Kindred, a novel that sends a contemporary character back into the past to experience slavery firsthand. Sometimes I would do a course on like postmodern neo-slave narratives, which, mm-hmm. which seemed like a really interesting, you know, like, like question of how are we thinking about abolition, about mm-hmm. social justice and this kind of irreverent postmodern vein. So I think I'd been thinking about these questions for a long time before I was ever writing it. And then for me, the, the schism that I mentioned earlier, the fact that you have all these contemporary writers, you know, writing again, massively best-selling books on the subject, but the conditions of production and reception are so different. So that kind of schism between the modern slave narrative that's repeating a lot of the things that were happening in the 19th century and then the the kind of iconoclasm of the neo-slave narrative. I really wanted to think about that as somebody who was interested in thinking about what happens to race and to racial forms as they travel, as mm-hmm. they get translated across the world, right? So so. You know, at, today I think we're in a moment, and it's a contradictory moment, where if you think about African American literature, like in an English department or in a university, something like that, it is no longer marginal, mm-hmm. right? It's in, in fact like the, the, there's that's not the position that we should structurally ascribe to it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, many of the populations represented, right, by by these writers and by the subjects that these writers are taking on are still in a position of structural vulnerability and are exposed to extreme state violence. Mm -hmm. And so I think that contradiction Mm -hmm. is something that that poses particular challenges for how we think about contemporary black cultural production. And some of of it also came from my involvement with ASAP, the Association for the Study of the Arts of the Present. Mm. And so really trying to think about how do we theorize the contemporary kind of in the moment of its emergence, right? In its uncertain moment of emergence, how do we describe racial formations that haven't yet coalesced, right? So if you think about the whiplash from the Obama era to the Trump era, mm-hmm. right? They can, mm-hmm. But, you know, there are also important and deep continuities across the kind of racial and and imperial regimes that continue across of those. So I wanted to think about those questions. And was there anything that surprised you while you were teaching these classes over the past? I mean, and and perhaps during that whiplash that happened over the past, I don't know, how 20 years, it feels like. (laughs) It feels like our entire (laughs) terrible lives, but that there was some 
how did students respond to to the class, to the material that you were bringing to the class, mm-hmm. and th- to the ways I'm that you were uh, teaching it? Constantly surprised. And, really? Yeah. And it's a, um, I mean, it's a privilege to teach this material, I would say that. But I'm also very aware of the fact that it's, a, and, and my students always tell me this when they're leaving, that now I'm depressed for the rest of the week, right? Mm. Like, it's it's very difficult material yeah. um, to work with. I mean, one, one incident that happened just a couple, I think it was last year, or it was whenever Kanye West had those tweets oh. mm. about, you know, oh, how we should I, get yeah. over slavery. It was, yeah. it was 400 years yeah. ago. It was a choice. So that was a day that I was teaching a class called Remembering Slavery, Remaking Race. Mm. And it was for African-American studies. So it was an interdisciplinary class. And we were talking about reparations. We were talking about, you know, universities that are trying to make attempts to think about their constitution and slavery. And, so, and we were reading some literature as well. So we were reading Frederick Douglass that day. And we did not talk about it at all because the students, you know, and I was like, OK, we'll do things. I was like, <laughs> Okay, we will talk about Kanye West for 10 minutes. But yeah. then, of course, we talked about him for, for the whole, whole class. And it was, really, it was really interesting. So it was a predominantly black class, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it was really fascinating to me to watch how so many of the students felt this personal sense of injury because they were fans, right? And they had, they had thought that he had said things before that were deeply meaningful to them. And, now, and, so, and so there was a big debate in the class about there were people who supported him. Mm-hmm. There were people, many people who opposed him, many people mm. who said, look, we don't need to think about this. He's just mouthing off and, and so on. So I think I've, I've learned to kind of know. I don't know that I have a way of dealing with it, but, but you know, it's a, it's a volatile subject. Mm-hmm. It's completely unresolved and it, is, it rears up in, in, in ways that I think actually make the, make the teaching valuable for me because we're not just staying inside the classroom, right? We're kind of following what's happening outside as well. Well, we could have talked about this for much, much longer. And obviously, the discussion continues. But we want to thank you so much, Yogita, for being with us. We've been speaking with Yogita Goyal, author of Runaway Genres, The Global Afterlives of Slavery. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 